This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello, Bad Movie Lovers. I'm back. That's right, I have returned from my honeymoon, a married man, and... If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. I wasn't sure that I was going to come back and do another episode before the end of the year. We had the honeymoon, and then when we got back, we're only a few days out from Christmas. And maybe I'm crazy, but it could be the holiday spirit talking too. But I wanted to do a Christmas episode for all you listeners out there who have helped grow the show and supported me throughout this journey. I wouldn't be doing this otherwise, and I really appreciate it. And this is just, you know, some fun to give back during the holidays. And as part of that fun, we're going to do a little giveaway. So between now, which is December 22nd, and the end of the year on December 31st, everybody who is either a monthly subscribing member or has provided a one-time donation of any kind at ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove, L-O-V-E, where the new members-only bonus content is up also, by the way. Or head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a rating and a review, and I might even read it at the outset of one of these shows one day, but you too will be entered for a chance to win a copy of Anna and the Apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse Christmas musical. It has become a Christmas staple in our home, and I hope it does in yours as well. But you gotta enter to have a chance to win. But enough of the housekeeping, my buddy Scott Cole is back again, and you might remember him from our episode on Blank Man that was pretty recent, and you might also remember that he stopped by to do an episode on Empire Records. But today he's here to celebrate the holiday season as we take a look at Nora Ephron's 1994 quirky Christmas comedy, Mixed Nuts. Oh, maybe I've made a mistake. Like, maybe this isn't good. This ruined my Christmas. <laughs> you are a piece of crap. That bothered me less than her pouring milk into that, like, cycling bottle. Don't don't take it too seriously if you watch it. It's a doorbell. Like, of course you can hear it. It's designed for you to hear it. They're at the vet, and Felix is taking animal tranquilizers, and he's barking. I was like, she could probably do better. Yeah, everybody gets concussed. Don't empty the bullets out of a gun by just shooting it randomly around your apartment. I would say Christmas trees and the soundtrack do all the heavy lifting and making you feel like it's Christmas. I can clearly see that this movie was fun to make and that the people in it are having fun making it. And that makes it more fun for me to watch Peter Tain Scott can watch it. He'll go in the basement and watch it. He'll be he'll have a great time. Scott, welcome back for a special bonus edition. Well, it's not a bonus episode technically in that it's not going to subscriber content, but it is a bonus episode in that we're squeezing it in for the holidays because it's Christmas movie time. I mean, it's Christmas time, but it's also Christmas movie time as a result. And 
you're rejoining us once again to talk about mixed nuts yes perfect man thank you for having me back so soon i feel like we just did it uh for blank man but uh yeah i uh i think i don't remember i guess we were talking earlier this year and i i mentioned this as one of the movies that i would consider for the topic of the the pod and you were like maybe we could make a holiday episode out of it and i was like i filed it away in my brain i was like i hope you didn't forget and you didn't forget you brought it up to me so uh <laughs> i did not forget this crazy christmas movie that seems to have been mostly forgotten i feel like this is the one movie set at christmas that you don't see constantly on tv <laughs> that's a it's, good point yeah yeah it's it's like and then of course it was very uh it wasn't paid a lot of attention to when it came out, which doesn't help. <laughs> it came and went very fast, but uh, it's always been a beloved favorite of mine. I've just watched it so many times. I watched it a million. Like I know I'm. I just would wear this tape out when I was a kid. I'm not sure what it was about it that I liked so much, but I used to. Yeah, I watched it so many times when I was young. And so, was this a movie that was like? you got for like in 1995 when this had hit VHS a year later. Yeah. So I remember, I think the first time I saw it was just like a rental. Um, but I know the next, I liked it so much that I was interested in buying it. Of course, this was back in the day when you had to wait forever for some VHSs to become, uh, mm -hmm. enough, like to lower the price enough where you could buy them just like at a store. But I remember I kind of kept tabs on all the movies that had come out, like especially the ones I liked and when they were going to be released when I can buy them. But I remember going to media play <laughs> with my family and being surprised by the mixed nuts tape sitting there. Like, I think I gasped probably. I was like, oh, it's here. We can get it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I begged my parents. They bought it for me. And it, I, so that's the thing is I was thinking about if this was one of the Columbia House movies. And I don't it wasn't because I remember the specific story of going and seeing it and being surprised and having them buy it for me so uh yeah and then it was after that i guess where i just just watched it so many times and not even at christmas i think i was watching it a lot throughout the year too yeah and i don't know why i, I was a big steve <laughs> martin fan yeah always kind of a big steve martin fan i think also the madeline khan part was something i enjoyed because my dad when we were younger showed us the mel brooks movies and I got to, and I watched Clue a lot. So I just got to know Madeline Kahn a lot through those movies. And I like, I thought she was funny in this too. So I think that's, those are probably my main entry points, I'd say, for this one. And like, how old were you when you saw this for the first time? Okay. I would have been like, I'd have been like nine or maybe 10, nine or 10. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And when, when you rented it for the first time, like, was this something that your parents watched with you or is this something where they sort of looked at it as like, Oh, it's innocent enough. We're not concerned with the sometimes very disturbing content that is present <laughs> in this film. Or is this something that was like, this is a family Christmas movie that we watched together. Definitely not a family one. Uh, pretty much the way it went in my house was if it was PG 13 or below, mm -hmm. I was okay to rent and watch it. Uh, the R movies didn't come until later, but uh, with like a couple of exceptions. But no, it was mostly if it's PG thirteen, Scott can watch it. He'll go in the basement and watch it. And he'll be he'll have a great time, and that's what it was. I don't, I don't. The whole family did not get into this one. I don't think. And did you ever like watch this with your parents or your dad or anything? I saw it. I know <laughs> I saw it with my sister. My sister is two and a half years older than me, 
and uh she didn't like it <laughs> she was with the uh, the majority of people yeah, on she's this not alone in that. <laughs> yeah she was not really a fan of it i think she was kind of like well, i don't get why you think this is such a big deal and i'm like but it's so funny it's great um but no i don't think i if my if i were to guess i would guess my parents never saw this hmm. interesting yeah. but since you brought up your sister and like i mean obviously like I said, a lot of people didn't like this. Most people didn't like this. It has a, a 14 meta score. I think it's, you know, some something like that on Rotten Tomatoes as well. It's got like a 14 percent. So very, very low critical values in in terms of scores. Uh, but like, why would you say that is? Because, you know, as I had sort of posted yesterday, I'm like, like, this is Nora Ephron, like during the Nora Ephron years, right? Like, this is Steve Martin, like very close after snl like he's almost at the height of his fame as well like this cast overall like juliette lewis is like on the rise at the time adam sandler lee schreiber parker posey you know a lot of heavy hitters like rob reiner just kind of has like a throwaway like you know cameo role almost as the doctor here and you mentioned madeline khan as well so like what what do you think it was rita wilson uh like what do you think it was that sort of turned people off of this movie I think that it didn't help that it came out right after Sleepless in Seattle, because I think people had almost gotten used to that kind of Nora Ephron, yeah. kind of the lighter, sweeter one. Whereas this movie is more like her writing and password, which can be dark and acerbic. But I think I think it didn't help that it was so close to Sleepless in Seattle and they had the ads like from the director of Sleepless in Seattle. And you're thinking, oh, this looks like I know it's like a, a holiday movie. It looks the poster's got Steve Martin in a Santa hat. Well, yeah, it looks great. And uh, really, it's just a, a very strange movie of a lot of goofy sketches, I'd say, that kind of vary in terms of um, realism at times or even comedy. They're sometimes dark, sometimes very slapstick, like the farcical elements of it, which it's based on that. I'm sure you know this based on a French farce. Yeah, so that stuff gets really slapsticky at times and almost when it doesn't, almost to the point where it doesn't make sense. There's one shot where Steve Martin just sits down in a chair and falls and you're like, why did he fall? Like it doesn't, <laughs> it just, it doesn't make, yeah, they, they just, they're reaching for anything like that that they can find, but it's not really consistent because there's, yeah, it's dark and then very, like I said, slapsticky in different, and almost in equal measure back and forth constantly. It's a, the tone is always a little weird. You're, ne you're never quite sure where you stand with this movie. <laughs> but I think the reason why, I mean, the cast is very good. But I think also it's not a very winning Steve Martin role or performance. I think that doesn't help either. Yeah, opinion. his character is. He's not necessarily like unsavory or bad, but he's not particularly likable. No. And there is this like, you know, love story that I don't know, festering is maybe too negative of a connotation <laughs> there, but it is like Rita Wilson is like pining for him. She's his assistant. She really like idolizes him. And from what we see as the audience, it's hard to understand why. Like she seems capable, sweet, pretty, caring, all these things. It's like, why does she like? This guy, he doesn't seem to like really care about his employees and he's just like manic and a little bit strange. So sort of like in contrast to a lot of other holiday love stories, this is one where 
I didn't feel myself necessarily like pulling for them to have that success, you know, where in basically every other setup, it's like either guy is crushing on girl and like waiting for her to figure it out or vice versa. And then eventually they come together in the end and everything's happy. But you're typically like cheering for that in in those other situations. And in this, I was just like, mm. I was like, she could probably do better. Yeah, it doesn't help that he seems to be bad at. OK, he's good on the phone. That's the one thing they tell you <laughs> in the movie. He can do it on the phone, but he's bad in person, not particularly great at his job, not very capable. And they tell him so. People say that to his face, like throughout the mm-hmm. movie, people are like, you are a piece of crap. And yeah, I was. I, I guess I'm thinking about she does walk in that one part where he's on the phone saying the pothole. There's what is it? Hope and hope in every pothole. That yeah. whole thing. <laughs> um, maybe she's charmed by that side of him, the way he is good on the phone like that. Maybe she does find that sweet and endearing. But I also agree. It's kind of a leap to see why she. Well, I guess the movie's trying to set up that she's had it been pining forever. So mm-hmm. um, they've worked together for like six years, it says. I, I I do find myself rooting for them, though, in a weird way. I'm kind of like, just because the way <laughs> uh, the movie just tells me this is the main character and this is what I'm supposed to care about. You think in most movies, Rita Wilson would be the main character, you think. Yeah. We would follow her. And she's she's great in this, by the way. I think this might be the best Rita Wilson role ever, in my opinion. She's hmm. so good. And then I feel like after this, she just kind of gets misused and like just shows up in supporting parts and just here and there. But this is like a really great performance by her, I think, in this movie. She's very winning, uh, very kind of sad. And then she's she does the comedy stuff well, because occasionally she has to jump into the slapstick. Everybody gets their turn in the slapstick barrel in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, everybody's got to fall down or yeah, trip or yeah, crazy. But I do find myself rooting for them uh, mainly because of her. I want her to be happy. Yes, exactly. Like, I feel I'm like she can do better than this guy that she's been pining after. And if he lives up to the person that she believes him to be, then they can have a happy ending and like we'll get the Christmas finish to the movie that we all want. And it like it kind of gets there, but I think it's supported a lot by all of the other characters like getting their own moment as well not just at the end but throughout the course of the film like i feel like there's other relationships that i care about as well and maybe even more than the primary relationship and like a character like miss munchik who sort of starts off as like she's a little prissy and she kind of like looks down on them and you know she gets the she gets re-gifted her own gift though so that Mm -hmm. lets you know who philip is as a character so like you said, it's not it's not a particularly like winning Steve Martin performance in that it's not as charming as many of his other performances, many of his other characters. So it, it's starting you from a, a difficult place and not just like figuratively either. Like literally this movie starts in Venice Beach. I mean, the whole movie takes place in Venice Beach, but you're like out on the beach boardwalk to start the film. And it's like the sun is shining, the beach, the ocean. It doesn't have the sort of Christmassy vibes of the snow and sort of like being in the Northeast and all that. And so it, it, it starts as a much different Christmas movie than pretty much every other Christmas movie, including Christmas movies of that year as well, that sort of fit a particular type of mold that want to get you in the mood a certain way. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard place to start from, but 
I I respect the kind of dedication it takes to make something like this a reality because like you said it was adapted from a French film but at the same time I'm watching this and it almost felt like I'm watching sort of a a stage play because the pacing of everything is very fast like the dialogue is very fast. The dialogue immediately goes into the phone ringing. The phone ringing immediately goes into like a slapstick gag that leads into like a new character busting through the door. And so it's like it's paced like that almost the entire time. So you don't even really have the kind of space to breathe with some of the heavier topics that they're grappling with that are like legitimate thematic topics, especially around the holiday season when you're dealing with uh, a story about a suicide prevention hotline, basically, that's about to go out of business. Like there is some like real texture and depth there. But like you said, the tone is kind of. I don't know if it's unwilling or it was just not quite well formed enough to sort of point us in that direction, because then we're really getting away from like what's going to make an enjoyable Christmas movie for people, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that the. I would say Christmas trees and the soundtrack do all the heavy lifting and making yeah. you feel like it's Christmas. <laughs> um, there's a lot of Christmas tree elements. It comes into the plot several times. Parker Posey and John Stewart, unrecognizable John Stewart, right? Because they've got the rollerblading mm-hmm. helmets on. Uh, they show up from time and time again, getting their tree ruined. <laughs> uh, Christmas trees there, and then like the music is all like familiar. Well, <laughs> it's like any Nor Ephron movie. You got to have a Carly Simon song on there. She's always going to have a Carly Simon one, which ends this movie. But the rest of it's just all Christmas music, like the standard hits that, you know, and I feel like that really does a lot of the heavy lifting with it. But I agree with what you're saying. Like the I mean, there are suicide jokes aplenty in this movie. Yeah, (laughs) like yeah, I mean, that's the darker side. And that's and some of them are funny. The, The Stephen Wright joke where he's in the phone booth. She's like, click it. I mean, that is funny. And the way they play it is funny because they're just staring at the way they're just staring at the phone. Like he'll call back and they just both like take a beat and just stare. I don't know. I think they play that really well, but it is kind of touchy material. Yeah. And you're, and then it's <laughs> like counteracted with the, the worst part of it, I think sort of is uh, everything involving Felix. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he's going to the vet he starts barking for some reason after he takes the medicine. You know, that kind of stuff is there's there's a specific stretch of this movie. I think that starts about when when they take him to the vet or when he and Juliette Lewis come into the apartment and all the stuff happens where she ends up hitting him in the head from that scene until uh, Liv Schreiber comes in. I, I, I'm just like out of the movie. I'm like, I don't like this. This is annoying. I don't care about this. As soon as he c- comes in, Liv Schreiber, his character comes to the apartment i feel like that to the end the movie is like soaring like i feel like it just takes off and doesn't even look back it is like a play where everybody's moving it's like noises off everybody's constantly moving fast Mm -hmm. coming in and out of the apartment um and i feel like everybody for the most part is really in sync with each other i feel like they're all doing a good job sort of tap dancing with each other but then you kind of the only thing that kind of gets in the way is it's not his fault but the way steve martin's character is He's just kind of gawking at everybody like, what's going on? What are all these? Like, there are so many shots, reaction shots of Steve Martin looking crazy. Like, what's up? (laughs) I mean, they just they go to that well over and over and over again. 
And I don't think it's his fault, really. I mean, I think it's a t- it would be a tough part for anyone to play. Um, but my one theory I have about his hair, I'm not <laughs> Thank sure God why you they brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why they dyed his hair brown. My only guess is maybe at some points he didn't want to be associated so much with this guy, mm. and he was like, "Can I just look a little bit different?" But I think they realized that it looks weird because in the movie poster he's wearing a Santa hat, which he mm. never has at any point in the movie. I think they were trying to cover up the brown hair. Or the poster. That's my theory about the hat and the hair. It's also not just dyed; like it's styled, <laughs> like with like feathered bangs. It's very weird. Uh, and several times, it looks like his makeup is maybe a little heavier too than I had seen in some other roles. And especially when he's sort of like in the elevator shaft, I'm like, this is a really weird look for him. Like he's yeah. Steve. He's Steve Martin. You know what you're getting when you cast him. So. I, like maybe you don't want him to to sort of present as a guy that's like maybe in his 50s and you want someone that like seems like they're in their early 40s or, you know, someone that was capable of starting a business, having served in, I think they said like the Peace Corps, like elsewhere in the world. So yeah. he's got a big enough like character background, but maybe in order to like make him desirable for Rita Wilson's character, he had to have those bangs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the Peace Corps line. That that really seems to not fit with the character that they mentioned that he did that in the past. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, it's kind of so. Okay, we may I we may talk about it later. I'm not sure, but so my boys uh, Siskel and Ebert mm-hmm. they were gave a very like two minute fast cursory damning review of this movie. They didn't like it, but. <laughs> Ebert says, why would you have Madeline Kahn be in the movie and spend the whole movie stuck in elevators screaming? And I don't like that because she does that for about 15 minutes. Yeah. The rest of the movie, she's out. She's in the she's interacting with people. She's doing funny shit the whole movie. I'm like, I just that that line gets on my nerves that he said that because I'm like, she has a lot more. And by the way, she's very funny in the elevator. Everything she does in the elevator makes me laugh. The rapping, the everything. So I I think she's one of the MVPs of the movie and they seem to think she was wasted. And I was like, I don't, I just don't agree with that. She is like irrationally angry the whole movie. You're not quite sure why she's so angry. Well, I would say Juliette Lewis is the most irrationally angry in the movie. (laughs) Maybe not irrational, just very, very angry. And Madeline Kahn's like one step below, but yeah, they're, they're intense. They're, they're mad for pretty much from the word jump to the end. Yeah. And I, this is not a Christmas movie that I grew up with. This is a Christmas movie I didn't even know about until like three years ago when I was working <laughs> on a project for the website. And I was like, look, I want to find more of these Christmas movies that are like the antithesis of what the average Christmas movie is. And I came across this one and I was like, oh, my God, how did I not know about this? Like the cast is amazing. Like Nora Ephron, of course, like and directed. You have all these like fantastic cameos like you've got young talent in place that would go on to blow up like Adam Sandler mm. and to to see it a second time fairly you know it wasn't that long ago when I watched it but to see it now I think one of the things I cheered for the most actually was Madeline Kahn's character and mm-hmm. it's like sure she's stuck in the elevator and it's kind of like a gag at that point where it's oh she's stuck she's just making noise you can hear her clearly throughout all of the other scenes (laughs) asking for help while they sort of just ignore that point. But then once she's out of the elevator and things are fixed, uh, like her character just being able to like sort of 
go through the whole uh, Nightspanger thing, which, yes, there's a serial killer like in the background of this movie as well. That is just <laughs> kind of like glossed over for, you know, the majority of the runtime. Like so all of like the really dark elements like that are sort of buried beneath the surface of all of these very eccentric characters, uh, these very particular character choices, the pacing, the the background score that sort of makes this feel like a, an upbeat kind of comedy. But I think the thing that I took away from it this time that I love the most is that even though it is strange, I don't feel that it's like super inaccurate like the older i've gotten the more i've realized that like christmas is not the same for everybody there's a lot of people in the world that don't celebrate there's a lot of people who the holidays are really really tough on and i think what we see in this movie that is uh it's explicit but it's not expressed so much is that like this is a family that they're building right like so many christmas movies are about family and about family values and being together on the holidays and in the scene where we first sort of get Lee Schreiber on the way to join the the rest of the cast at the apartment location or whatever, the office, you see that this is a person who has said, like, I'm very alone. I feel alone today. I don't want to be alone. And that's the whole catalyst for Lee going to the office. And then when he steps out of the room, you see that, like, the entire family, there's like 15 people they're <laughs> celebrating Christmas, Christmas sweaters, having fun. And it's like he's just the odd duck in that situation or she is just the odd duck in this situation. And the family does not respect this person's choices and doesn't respect their life as an individual. So they're just like, no, we're going to give you a hard time. But it is a very, very like noticeable moment that sets the tone of like, look, this is the this is the family Christmas that you see all the time. This is on the Hallmark Channel. This is on Christmas cards. This is the picturesque family holiday. But for that one person in the family, that's not the case. And so I really like that this movie sort of takes all of those individual characters and then gives them their own Christmas that works for them in a way that isn't the same as it is for everybody else. Yeah, I agree. Weirdly enough, sort of what you're talking about is they they actually do some serious moments pretty well in the movie. Like the speech toward the end where Steve Martin talks about Christmas is puts your life under a magnifying glass and it mm -hmm. makes the things that are worse seem a lot worse and makes yeah. you sadder than you would be. And like the stuff with Rita Wilson when she's with Julia Lewis and they're making the Christmas wish. Like some of those moments are actually handled well in the movie. They're not, they don't come off as like really phony or anything. They're like, they're kind of sincere and they feel sweet to the point where it kind of makes you feel like Nora Ephron, even though she's writing this crazy with her sister writing this crazy these these situations she does care about these characters you feel like yeah and the about the so about i think liv schreiber is it leah leah schreiber yeah he's got i think he might be the best performance in the movie yeah i think it's pretty incredible what he manages to do for a first it was his first movie too mm -hmm. so when I okay, so if you're talking about a movie from 1994, and you're like, there's going to be a character, a transgender character in the movie, you think it's going to be horribly handled, yeah, like unbelievably bad. Like this is 30 years ago we're talking about. I think this movie does a pretty good job of handling that situation. I don't think it's outwardly really offensive about it. I will say I know the 
the Arnold scene with the family is mean. Yes. But I, it, cra- it cracks me up a little bit. I can't help it. It's because it's because they stopped playing 12 Days of Christmas to play Arnold. And then as soon as she walks out, they start playing 12 Days of Christmas again. It's so mean that something about that is kind of... And then the movie calls back when she walks by the movie store and there's pictures of Arnold in Terminator 2. Did you notice that? Oh, that I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that character, specifically the way Adam Sandler's character relates to her, is I kind of sweet and well handled too. I I was surprised. I was bracing mm-hmm. myself for something more uh, hateful, almost, or like not hateful, but just ignorance. And I feel like the movie does a pretty good job with it, especially for the time. Yeah, if you were to on paper just tell somebody, "Hey, there's a 1994 Christmas movie with like a trans character, and it's a comedy." And it's sort of a often weird and plucky comedy. Like you would expect that that is not going to be handled too adeptly. And I don't know that any other movies that I can think of off the top of my head from that early '90s era really were inclusive of a character like that to begin with, or handled it very well uh, beyond that. So I agree with you 100% that this was, you know about as good of representation as we could have expected from a movie from this era, because like you said, aside from the mean spirited nature of the family situation, which does reinforce the need for this character to leave that setting and to tell, well, confirm for us as the audience that this feeling of loneliness is coming from somewhere. This isn't just like, this throwaway thing like you know you got the creepy guy calling he's like i want to wish a woman merry christmas then he starts like jerking off on the phone or whatever he's doing so you've got like the creepy callers and then you have like a real person with real feelings on the other end of that phone and like you said when you bring in a character like adam sandler's character who is slightly infantile in his presentation, he's very well goofy. Said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he, you know, he's doing the Adam Sandler thing with the goofy voice. And we do get a good Adam Sandler song out of it, though. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah to, to put those two characters together and to not only like expect it to function well, but to, to write it with heart and with care and to treat both sides of that equation with enough respect for those two characters in the eyes of the audience to like actually line up in a position where it's like, this makes sense. And it handles this with care and affection rather than making it the kind of like sideshow that probably a lot of other movies of that era would have done with those two characters. Yeah. I would say the closest this movie comes is again, too many reaction shots of Steve Martin being weirded out during the dance sequence but the dance sequence is great because of how they end up getting so into it as it goes on it gets funnier yeah. and funnier <laughs> uh he said he won like the 1968 mambo contest or something but uh yeah they get really into it but they're uh, yeah at the beginning of that scene there's just a lot of setup where we're like okay we get it steve martin is weirded out blah 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 and then eventually it settles into they they just become Liv schreiber just becomes a character and they're just relating to the character after that not so much anything about the way they look or whatever um just becomes one of the gang kind of and yeah adam sandler is interesting because it's 
this is the year before Billy Madison. So this is like peak SNL Sandler. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's basically doing opera man in this movie. <laughs> he's just singing <laughs> all these songs on the ukulele. And they're all funny songs. I mean, I, I think they're all good. Like everything that he does in this movie, I think is pretty good. But infantile is a good way to put it. He seems very much like a child and uh, <laughs> very confused about the way the world works. And, you know, he writes T-shirts <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it is weird to see. And he looks like seven years old. He looks so young in this movie. Yeah. It's crazy. When you look at him, you're like, oh, my gosh. And like even his character introduction, like you had mentioned sort of the, the phone call where they're trying to talk this guy out of killing himself. And we see that he's got the gun in the phone booth with him. And then it is, you know, told to us in not such uncertain terms that he kills himself. And Crickets. yeah. And, you know, then they look at the phone and they're like, OK. He'll call back like everybody else does. And then like that quiet realization that what happened probably happened. And then they cut straight from that to like they go into the hallway and Adam Sandler's out there with his like ukulele. And it's like he's changing the tone very quickly. So it doesn't like simmer in the darkest, saddest elements of it too long before getting back on track with like, no, this is the kind of like quirky comedy that we want to present you with. But we also want to acknowledge that like all of these other things are also real on Christmas. It's not just rainbows and love stories and puppies. And, you know, it's not just that. So I think it was actually handled yeah. pretty well, considering. I mean, I get why if you're looking for a Christmas movie and you come across this and you're like, hey, this is a great cast and Nora Ephron's OK, I'll throw this on. And then you watch it be like, this ruined my Christmas. <laughs> I could totally understand that. But I don't think that is the same thing as this being a bad movie. Yeah. Well, I also think like. I don't think that audiences are necessarily opposed to like a prickly or thorny Christmas movie. I mean, I was thinking about how the family stone has become sort of a hit always yeah. on TV on Christmas. And that's movies got several very dark things going on in it. Um, Darker than what's in this movie, I would say, because I feel like even the suicide angle in this movie is not really taken seriously in a dramatic way. Um, it's more like seen as a concept, I guess, and then like a punchline almost. But in that movie, there's a lot of really dark stuff happening with illness and everything. And people love that movie. They ate it up. They watch it. So I don't think people are I wouldn't think people are turned off by the dark elements. But I think maybe it is the whiplash of back and forth. Yeah. It throws people off because you can't really pin this movie down no matter how much you try. Like you try to figure it out and then something will happen in the next scene. That's usually not even in the realm of realism at all. Uh, <laughs> but you're just like, oh, OK, well, um, now, you know, they're at the vet and Felix is taking animal tranquilizers and he's barking. I mean, that's a crazy thing to write in a screenplay, but they they did it. <laughs> yeah. And even that. <laughs> moment in the film is preceded by like a, an act of domestic violence essentially right i mean not that a cookie tin would give him that level of concussion or even like bloody his nose at all but the implication is that she hits him in the head and now he's bleeding severely and they have to take him to the only doctor that they can take him to which happens to be rob reiner's like extra quirky doctor who is like complaining about his own love life to philip and philip is like yeah i i don't even have an answer for you because i'm just here to fix this so i can get back to fixing this other thing so i i get why that whole middle of the movie is just like 
I think they I think they felt the need that they had to get out of the office. Right. Because like mm-hmm. everything is just taking place in the office. Like we have to give them some reason to like go outside and, you know, yeah. we're in Venice Beach. Like we got to do something other than just hang out in this one room the whole time. But I think and I think you agree that like when they're all together in that room is actually when it's the best or at least when they're in the building because then it's like you meet the neighbors you you have the the elevator incident so it's like there's all these little particular quirks of the building the gary shanling landlord who looks yeah. like he's you know uh retired in florida and all white so you've got all these very particular choices with the setting that i think reflects like who these characters are and it's like only certain types of characters will live in this quirky building kind of thing and i think all that comes together in a way that really like benefits the film when everybody's together more so than it does when they sort of take their own individual paths yeah i i think it's funny just a small like character thing that i think is funny is when you have gary shanling's character the landlord, uh, Stanley Tannenbaum, mm-hmm. when you have him talking to Philip or C. Martin's character about the eviction, he's just walking around slowly, on, like turning the lights down, like there's little light bulbs. <laughs> and when he's just he's just untwisting them to save money on electricity, he turns off the exit sign. I, it's just a funny touch that a guy who is clearly this li- like this and kind of sleazy is just trying to save a penny everywhere he can by turning off. I did. Yeah, that was. Just something funny that I don't know if it's in the script, but it's, you know, Shanling so good, was so good at that kind of stuff that you're almost like, I wonder if he just improv that. Like, I'm just going to be my like saving little money here and there while I'm having this conversation about your eviction. Yeah, I mean, he's such a sleazy landlord, like yeah. when we first meet him and then he's just he's doing all these little things that basically would be like, well, you're you're encouraging your tenants to like want to get out of there. Right. So like the stuff with the light bulb is like, okay, well, let's like unscrew that one, unscrew that one, not fix the elevator. All of those kinds of things start to add up over time. And dealing with landlords in my regular work, like good ones are great. Bad ones are really bad. (laughs) So I was just like, oh, wow. It's like they actually like nailed sort of the persona of the landlord that is arrogant, but also just like doesn't care. Yeah. And I was like, that's it's a very particular like needle to thread. But they did a really good job with that. Uh, Yeah, he doesn't even want to he doesn't even want to come. They call him about her being stuck in the elevator. He's like, I can't. They're like, she can't spend Christmas in an elevator. He's like, all right, I'll be there in a few hours. He's under no (laughs) he's not concerned at all about any of it. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, But this is not a movie that like I was aware of at the time. So I want to go back and check out the trailer because that'll give us a little insight into what this movie was sort of marketed as, especially like in that Efron 90s era. Oh, yeah. They're going to bring up Sleepless in Seattle so many times in this trailer. Get ready. Let's see. All right. Well, if we were I've not seen it, it, but I would imagine (laughs) they would. If we were doing a drinking game and we had to (laughs) drink for every time they advertised from the maker of Sleepless in Seattle, we would probably be wasted by the time we got back. (laughs) Before we get to the trailer... I usually take a little time to have fun with products from another world. But I'm going to do things a little bit differently for this episode. Because, well, movies and TV usually portray Christmas time as this wonderful moment for family, friends, generosity, and happiness. That's not the case for everybody. The holiday season is one of the most depressing and stressful times of the year for a lot of people. Whether that be financial stress, loneliness, too much pressure from unrealistic expectations, or just sheer exhaustion. 
So make sure to take account of your own mental health, check in on your loved ones, and find healthy ways to manage your stress during the holidays. And now, back to the show. Okay, let's rock and roll. Hello, this is Lifesavers. Merry Christmas. How may I help you? I have only two months to live. I'm so sorry, sir. Everyone at Lifesavers is with you. May I speak to a woman? Hello, Merry Christmas, if it's all right to say that. What's your name? Catherine. I want to ravish you like a wild animal. <laughs> now stop it right this minute. Edited. <laughs> Philip's job is solving other people's problems. May I put you on hold while I run to my desk? Uh, you're not calling from a bridge or holding a weapon? No. Good. But unfortunately, he's got for a suicide hotline. They're pretty flippant about this. like the risk of My suicide. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to a psychiatrist. Well, I'm not actually going to one. I've been dating one for four months. And now it's, it's so Christmas. savage. Can we show a little <laughs> Christmas spirit around here? Merry Christmas! Somebody's not in the holiday mood, I guess. <laughs> a time when the lonely. If you think your husband is having an affair, he is. Feel most alone. <laughs> Static again. Hello, hello. I can't hear you. Try clicking the little button. I'm having a problem hearing you. Look, I'm at the end of my rope, and I want to die. Click it, please. Go ahead. Yikes. I'm very lonely tonight. (laughs) Is there any chance I could stop by and talk? Well, if you are willing to make a small donation, say perhaps five grand. (gasps) I'm kidding. I came right over. (laughs) Do you have music? I'm not the physical you, comedy is good, though. Yeah. In my line of work, I deal with all kinds of people. <laughs> None of them are what you uh. might call conventional. <laughs> Dancing with you makes me feel all fluffy. <laughs> TriStar Pictures presents... I wish there was someone I cared for who cared for me. Are you a professional ukulele player? Oh, no, I'm a writer. What do you write? T-shirts. Steve Martin. My heart is racing. <laughs> I'm feeling all nervous and sick. That's the way I felt since the day I met you. I wrote Save the Dolphins. <laughs> in the new comedy. <laughs> from the director of Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, that's one. Hey. So naturally, I, I have to comfort her. Mixed nuts. Hello, Lifesavers. May I help you? You are speaking to a woman. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. That they don't try to hide what the movie is too much in that. They show you what you're gonna get, kinda. Um, yeah, like that's yeah, actually like, a little surprising. Yeah. I would not have put the suicide in there if I were cutting the trailer, but that is I a risk. Understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how this movie like actually performed, but it was like one of many christmas movies that came out in december so yeah like, it, it had some competition and again if this was like at the end of the road and you'd already seen the other ones do you do you go in on that trailer alone and eh, maybe maybe not yeah i i remember that at the i i do remember that at the end of the year that there were a ton of christmas movies that came out like this this was an opening against let's see Little Women, Richie Rich. Oh, wow. Yeah, a Dumb and Dumber. A lot of accessible stuff. Yeah, Legends of the Fall was opening, right? Like, all this stuff is 
the jungle book the one from the night yeah all this stuff is coming out right at the same time there's again we talked about this last time but it's just crazy how many movies they used to release in one weekend um i mean every weekend would be stacked full of like classics yeah but um nobody probably nobody else is going to call nick's nuts a classic but i will um but yeah I, and it did uh let's see oh it's title it's final gross was 6.6 million so it didn't it just disappeared i doubt it played longer than two weeks it was there it was gone i don't even maybe it wasn't even heavily promoted like there's that trailer but i don't even know if they advertised much on tv or anything like that like it just it feels like something people just forgot about completely and you said you didn't even know about it until a couple of years ago is that what you said yeah because it, it seems well, more like a christmas movie that comes out at a different time of the year where like yeah it is christmas and christmas is happening but christmas is not the focus and it's not necessarily about like oh the holiday spirit and sort of like sort of the mythology that goes with christmas like this is about these characters in this moment so it's like it's like a summer christmas movie almost but what was the release weekend uh this came out december 21st 1994 yeah, you don't give it much room to breathe there either, like right before the actual holiday either. And there's a lot of heavy hitters that weekend, too. So if you put no. this at like Thanksgiving or you you let it have that month up until Christmas, maybe it does a little bit better than trying to like shoehorn it in in the last like 10 days of the yeah. year. Because that when January true. rolls around, like, is anybody going to watch that? Yeah, and that is true. Like you find nowadays most Christmas movies come out in, around Thanksgiving. You're right, because they want to give you more time like after christmas people aren't going to be in the mood to watch a christmas movie usually they're kind of washing their hands of it so you're right yeah they usually give you that whole run-up like lead-up time where you can build an audience and like the holdovers this year has had plenty of time like it's a christmas movie but it's had a lot of several weeks to build up an audience and stuff like that but uh i was gonna say one thing about the trailer was you mentioned that the physical comedy is good and i, I that's one thing about the dance sequence that's really good is you finally in the movie, I feel like get to see Steve Martin do the Steve Martin physical comedy you're used to, and it's great as always. But I feel like he feels so restrained the whole movie, and then it, in that scene, he's actually kind of able to let loose. And uh, it's sort of like the equivalent of Robin Williams doing impressions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every movie with Steve Martin's got to have one little segment where he does yeah. some physical dance or dancing or something like that. But yeah, it's really it's really funny. He's very adept at that sort of thing. I think it's also symbolic in that moment, too, though, because, like you said, he is very sort of reserved, very restrained throughout the majority of the film. And in that moment where he is still like kind of rigid as they start dancing, like it loosens him up and he starts to feel like more normal, more like himself, like less like he has to be in control. And like he's grappling with sort of like being the the B side of that dancing duo and Mm. sort of like. I don't know if it's necessarily like emasculating, but he does get tossed across the room at one point, which sort of sets him off. And it's it's from that moment forward, though, that like things start to get better for everybody, like him included. So it's interesting that like that particular moment with that character who like he was very hesitant about allowing to come to the office in the first place because it's like, hey, you never know who's on the other end of that phone line. So having them like dance together in that way I think actually like opens a door for the rest of the film and Steve Martin's character development in particular. One, one thing I think is interesting is during the scene leading up to the dance, she's on the couch. He's 
lighting candles in case the power goes out. Yeah, why is the power keep going out? But anyway, lighting <laughs> the candles landlord. for the, Yeah, he just didn't. Yeah, didn't do something right. There's a short. Uh, but he's lighting candles in case the power goes out. And she's talking, and she he doesn't seem interested in what she's saying. And she's like, "I'm boring you, aren't I? I bore everyone. Uh, all this kind of stuff, negative self talk." And then he's trying to get her to leave. He holds up her cape. But he actually says what he says to her is actually good advice. It's like he has been listening to her. It just didn't seem like he was. He's like tells a story about the Mambo contest and how ever since he entered it and won, he doesn't care about what people think about him and she shouldn't care. You know, it's interesting advice. I feel like it's not a throwaway line. It feels like that actually is advice. And having said that, I feel like once they start dancing, it's almost like the more Steve Martin's character starts to see I think it's Chris is the name of Liv Schreiber. Yeah. As a like a as a person, it becomes more comfortable. Like, yeah, it, they start to have a connection that's more than just surface stuff. It's like they're actually connecting on a real way. And he seems to almost start to care about her by the end of it. And then the funny part is once they're the scene gets interrupted and they're doing other stuff, you just see her dancing around in the background, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like behind the scenes, just throwing yeah stuff and just dancing around. It's just funny how they had that going in the background. Yeah, because I think uh, Miss Munchik wakes up from her uh, her own concussion, right? Yeah, everybody like, fall- gets concussed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, falls and hits her head, and she's been laid down like behind the couch. So she sort of like pops up and like surprises them. And in that moment, it's like his guard was down. He was just enjoying the dancing element of it. And he's like, "Oh, we're busted!" Like, and it sort of like sets him back into his old patterns a little bit. But I like that it doesn't affect uh, Chris being there in that moment and like still yes. enjoying it and then continuing to be a part of the story from that point forward. Yeah. I I think it's funny how there's just like little things like Julia Lewis changing everyone's outfits for some reason. It's funny <laughs> to me dre- have the clothes to like dress everyone up, including Adam Sandler's character. They're all wearing different clothes, but like you said, yeah, there, there are three different characters, but I'm not, I may be low by one that get hit in the head with a door or something like they get like their nose broken or they hit or it's just funny how many times the bonks on the head happen in this movie it's a it's a big part of it yeah two people are like flat out concussed and then i think steve and rita both uh like hit their head on the doorway out the door oh they walk into the door yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they take that physical one to the face uh so there Chris is does a, it too sorry does he? oh at one point like turns around and is like face to face with the like the uh, glass wall or whatever yeah when when she's trying to storm off after she comes back to get her cape that's right (laughs) it's crazy it is and it's it's a weird choice i mean i guess it works when it's like you need some sort of reason for the like the cast to be trimmed down a little bit without like killing off any of the main characters so it's like all right well this person has head trauma they're gonna take a nap like this person has head trauma they're going to go get dog medicine at the vet for some reason from some veterinarian who's just like he's I think the only thing I like about that scene is that you get like Rob Reiner's vet. You get Steve Martin and uh, what is uh, Felix Felix. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the three of them and like none of them really like understand the women in their lives. Yet they're all complaining about like this mundane garbage that doesn't really apply to their relationship. It's like this complaints about the pillows, right? And I think in that moment, like you really have the three guys isolated and alone for the first time. 
And it's like, this is the kind of like dumb shit that they're talking about in terms of like what applies to their relationships. Meanwhile, like Steve Martin can't tell that like his secretary has been clearly in love with him for all this time. Like Felix and Gracie have sort of gone in different directions for like what they ideally want. Although Felix is trying to be there and trying to be like involved in the kids upcoming life. But it was just, it was an interesting aside when so many of the main characters uh, are female and it's written by a woman. So I, I like yeah. that it takes that tone because when we first, uh, when Chris first makes his way to the office or her way to the office, I should say, uh, and Ms. Munchik is on the other side of the door, there is this thing of like, Ms. Munchik is alone. She's proper. Like she feels older. There's a line that she says where she's like, oh, I was never young. But I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, what yeah. is she, maybe 40, like at the time that they're making this movie, like maybe early maybe. 40s, like she looks good, though. They and... treat her like she's an old, old lady. But yeah, right? she looks like she's in her 40s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, so like she's good looking. She she dresses well. She's actually like good at what she does. She's thoughtful enough to prevent to provide a present to her employer who isn't thoughtful enough to then actually shop for something for her. And then there is this like internal thing of like, oh, I'm old and I'm just kind of like this old bitch character. But at the same time, like I'm still desirable and the seaside strangler would want to come in here and strangle me and like there's this like cat and mouse of like ooh, should i open the door for this stranger and like see if i get swept away in this or just like do i keep playing into this character that everybody sort of like pigeonholed me into and so in watch in watching it this time i love that like she just got to like have her moment and like the guy that she hated with the dogs and they were like yelling at each other like that turned into this romance that like paid off for her in a great way and i was like oh that's really sweet actually that she seized the opportunity because I think she kisses him when she catches him outside with the dogs. And so I was like, I'm glad that like she saw her moment and she took it like that's a nice way yeah. to like have this character arc turn out. She kisses him and then orders him to take her to the beach so mm -hmm. they can get down. Yeah, um, munch it. Got it. <laughs> it is funny, though. Like she is when you said she's good at her job. I like that part or that line where she's on the she takes the phone away from Juliette Lewis. It's the obscene caller again. And she just like expertly diffuses him, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, cuts him off at the knees and he has nothing to say. And she's like, I am so good at this. And soon I will have no outlet for my talent because of the <laughs> addiction, the whole addiction thing, which like, but yeah, that is funny when she's at the door trying to like talk to the seaside strangler and Juliette Lewis goes, <laughs> okay, you're having a fantasy. <laughs> Nothing, he doesn't, this is not what you think it is. Like, what would he want with you? She didn't even say it's not him. She just goes, what would he want with you? <laughs> but yeah, you're right. They do treat her like a, an old lady. And it's like, she doesn't seem that much older than anybody else in this movie. I mean, 10 years, maybe, you know, 10 years yeah. older than Rita Wilson. Maybe it's like, yeah. If that at the time of this, yeah. I mean, you know, but she, she reminds me a lot of like, almost like a like a black and white era classic film character where in another timeline Madeline Kahn is the lead in this movie right where it's like this is her Christmas story so like we said a little bit earlier I'm glad that like each of these characters got to have their own Christmas story to a certain degree where it isn't just hey this is the cookie cutter like Christmas da dunk different cast you know just mass produced every year to to be a cash grab so yeah 
she turned out to be a character that I liked a lot more the second time. And I had a very different experience with it the second time. But I liked it both times still. It wasn't like, oh, I hated it the first time, liked it the second time, or vice versa. It was like, I, I didn't know what I was getting into the first time. And so I was like impressed with the cast and sort of like the super irreverent tone that it took with everything. And then this time I really got to appreciate a lot of the depth that, albeit doesn't have a ton of room to breathe or doesn't continue to go too deep, but there is a big cast. You can't really like do that for everybody. But yeah, I was impressed by like how much substance there was beneath the surface of what I enjoyed from it the first time and how much I actually like stopped and thought like, oh, wow, like this is way smarter than you might look at it on the surface because it is a slapstick ensemble kind of comedy and you don't have to take away some of the the smarter elements from it to enjoy it. But I really appreciated doing that this time around and sort of just sitting in those moments and the movie doesn't let me sit in them too long but the themes of like loneliness like actual suicide like being on the verge of like financial ruin like what it means to have family what it means to be dealing with an impending pregnancy when like you don't have the money to deal with it you have felix telling gracie like hey if we just sign this attestation saying that we are <laughs> that we have no money and that we never will have any never money will. we'll be able to have the baby <laughs> in a hospital like to think of like these kinds of things like these are very real things that don't stop being real just because it's christmas and i think that's actually where this movie finds its largest success is in telling those little small stories that are like real everyday struggles that don't stop for the holidays yeah i think I'm kind of torn because I know what you're saying and I sort of agree with that. At the same time, I feel like the Juliette Lewis, Anthony LaPaglia story, the Felix and Gracie, that's yeah. like the worst. That's like the worst part of it to me. I feel like it's just all pitched at one very high level, kind of obnoxious. Yeah, for sure. I think they're doing a good job playing their parts, but I think the parts just aren't written super well. Like Juliette Lewis, I think I read she made this right after natural born killers <laughs> like, so that's wild that they shoot from that to this you know like she's a good actress because there's nothing else she does that's really like this anthony lapalia played kind of we talked about this on empire records i think but he played this guy this new york tough talking guy all throughout the 90s uh, the client empire records this to the point that when i first saw that he was australian years later i was just like shocked i couldn't <laughs> believe it i was like oh, he's not the guy from New York, I don't I don't know what to make about it. But um <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this at the beginning speaking of the the high tone and the or the way it's pitched, when the first scene of this movie comes on, so TriStar logo comes up. I love it. I'm always in there for the TriStar logo, the best, <laughs> the old fashioned one. Um, the credits roll, credits kind of scrolling across the screen in a funny way. White Christmas was playing, he's he's riding around Venice Beach. All great. Then the first scene starts where they run into uh, where she is. Uh, Gracie's chasing Felix out into the mm. street because he ran off in the Santa suit. He runs into Parker posing <laughs> John Stewart's tree. They have a giant fight. Steve Martin comes out and tries to defuse it. He gets yelled at. Ends up taking the tree. That whole scene is so kind of irritating and like at such a high frequency that I was, I actually did think when I watched that scene, I thought, Oh, maybe I've made a mistake. Like maybe this isn't good. <laughs> maybe I screwed up. Maybe I don't like it anymore. 
um luckily it settles in and i like it but i'm just it, it was so it's a weird way to start a movie especially this movie it's like yeah it comes in kind of obnoxious and i'm like oh no but there is a great line in it though and it made me think it was like it was almost like a progressive line for the time it's when juliette lewis later on when felix is saying to her um you yelled at a guy in the street and she went this random stranger comes up to me on the street and tells me to smile just something about her saying that i was like that sounds ahead of its time like because you know then it becomes later on it's like you shouldn't go up to people and tell them just don't go up to women and tell them to smile for you like it's you know and she's like complaining that that's what this guy did and yeah i thought that was interesting i was like that's kind of cool of her to have had an issue with that yeah i noticed that too because it's become a lot more noticeable in projects over the last like handful of years uh but clearly it was something that you know uh a woman who had the ability to like make and write the movie like had been struggling with maybe not struggling with that's probably the wrong term but something that she had experienced and was able to pull from so that by the time we're now 30 years later like something like that which maybe didn't even strike people a certain way at the time actually was a pretty poignant representation of how women are going through life on a regular basis and the expectations put upon them by just random male strangers. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a, uh, some weird choices made with her character. Like the way she empties the gun. Right. No need <laughs> to that do that. <laughs> just wildly shooting around me. Like it's crazy. It's so crazy. And nobody can hear anything in this movie. Like there are conversations <laughs> happening in the next room. Like I think, Chris's Liv Schreiber's character Chris is screaming for help for somebody to bring her a band-aid forever. You can hear it in the background. Like this is when Steve Martin and Ree Wilson are in the bathroom when she's having sort of like a panic attack. He's trying to calm her down. Um and then <laughs> then you go back in and find out that Felix and Gracie were just one room over and didn't do anything while she's in here screaming she needs help. It's like it's interesting the way that the certain characters and even in the room with the elevator stuff, like at certain points like oh it's when gracie comes in maybe it's just her character it's when she comes in and she's trying to take the elevator up and they're screaming at her there's someone stuck up here don't push the elevator don't go to and she just keeps doing it and she like it's like there's no there's an empty space above her like there's no there's no uh nothing to catch that sound it's gonna she's got to hear everything so but anyway that's yeah nobody can hear anything especially her character can't hear what other people are saying (laughs) even in the room next door or the same room and then um, then she decides to empty the gun by just shooting it wildly around the apartment, which is just a crazy choice. I mean, I get they have to do it for the comedy, but I'm just like, good gosh. I know. I was like, they're very cavalier with the gun violence in this movie. Uh, just yeah. it's like if anyone is listening, you don't empty the bullets out of a gun by just shooting it randomly around your apartment building. It's not going to end well <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what you're talking about in terms of it's not the sound design, but the the design of the background dialogue right because as the audience it's to our benefit to be able to hear it because it helps us understand the humor in the scene better by like oh we can clearly hear this person in the other room they're calling for help while these other people for lack of a better word ignore them but i think nor efron is a skilled enough filmmaker uh, and aware enough of the story that she's telling that 
I don't necessarily know that it's played to the point where like the characters can't hear, you know? So I'm curious if it's an intentional decision because so much of this movie is about like these characters all like having their own individual struggles, right? They're all like so caught up in their own story that whatever's going on around them, like just doesn't register at all. And so like, I'm, I'm stuck between like, is this an intentional choice to like highlight that with all of these characters? Because by the end of the film, like, they're all on the same page. They're all together, right? To the point where, like, there's a mural painted at the end of, like, how mm-hmm. fantastic of a Christmas ending this really, really was. But then in those moments, like you said, where there's someone, like, literally, like, on the other side of the door and ringing the doorbell, and yet, like, it's a doorbell. Like, of course you can hear it. It's designed for you to hear it. And it's not like they're playing loud music. It's not like there's anything that's really impeding their ability to hear these sounds. Or like the situation in the elevator where it's like, you know, this is an open stairwell. The sound will travel up in that case as well. So the fact that like she can't hear it, is it a thing of like she can't hear it or she's just in in her own zone and unable to hear it? I didn't think about it that way, but that actually does make sense to me, kind of, because they go through such a length to set up the Adam Sandler, who's already down at the bottom, can't hear Madeline Kahn because he's got headphones in and is singing making it clear that, you know, uh, voices carry in that building. So that makes sense, actually, if it is. Maybe she can hear it, but she can't get out of her own, like she's thinking about her own problems and stuff, or in her own head about it. I'm going to accept that as the explanation, because I'm, like, driven crazy by the fact that she can't hear them screaming, (laughs) you're going to kill us, stop, stop on three, you're going to kill us, we're we're up here dangling. And they're, like, screaming at the top of their lungs because she's hanging in the air. Oh. And she's getting closer to them as she goes up in the elevator as they're yelling, too. And they think they're going to get squished at the top. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they have funny, like, there's some, like, that scene has a funny interaction between Rita Wilson and Steve Martin. I think they're funny together, but she's like, Philip, are you all right? (laughs) He's like, am I all right? Do I look all right? And then uh, he tells her that he broke up with uh, Jolie Fisher's Mm -hmm. uh, character. Um. Who is Carrie Fisher's half sister? I'm pretty sure. Oh um, wow! Yeah, I think they had, Eddie Fisher was their dad. I'm pretty sure, but I remember her. She was on like Ellen and stuff. I remember or when Ellen had a uh, sitcom, but she's pretty good. But um, when he tells her that they broke up, and Rita Wilson gets really excited for a second, and then she's like, "Oh wait, no, they're gonna die!" <laughs> like the way she does that that change from like excitement to like looking at them like, "Oh yeah, you guys are in trouble." They just have funny interactions together. Like I like when. <laughs> when after okay so she fires the gun wildly ends up shooting their landlord who's staying at the door gary shanley and and uh weeder wilson goes uh feel or uh, philip is this the miracle he goes <laughs> the eviction will probably go through regardless therefore this is not the miracle <laughs> like, the way he says that line just cracked me up was, like there's so many good back and forth between them i feel like in this movie but they do eventually get the Christmas miracle because it turns out that Stanley, the landlord, was also the seaside strangler, the serial killer that has so been terrorizing stupid. Venice Beach. It so is stupid. stupid. <laughs> Gary Shandling does not strike me as the serial killer type, yeah. but 
I mean, you know, they needed a Christmas miracle, and like, I don't know, he's got like twine in his bag. Yeah, they stuff. know it's him because of his bag. They're like, oh look, that's got to be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just pat him on the back, like, you got him. Here's your reward yeah. as well. <laughs> Thank you for shooting him. Yeah, he's two hundred fifty thousand right. dollars. I don't like that she hesitates when, like, she just won two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's the reward. Yeah, he's like, and can I get five thousand? And then she asks him. She goes, how much do you need? It's five thousand. She goes five thousand. I'm like, come on! I don't, I don't know why she hesitates. Like, or I don't know why they made that part of it that she hesitates. I'm like, don't do it. Just be like, absolutely, yes. Yeah. That also I bothered me. <laughs> that bothered yeah. me less than her pouring milk into that like cycling bottle and then drinking it and blowing bubbles Blood into bubbles. the bottle. I'm like. Yeah. Because when I saw her pouring the milk in there, I'm like, so what is this for exactly? And then later, she's just like sipping on it. I'm like, oh, she just has like a to-go milk container. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't making a protein shake or anything. She was just no. sipping on the I'll just, I'll just bubbles have with this the milk. lukewarm milk to-go. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the one thing that was, well, I guess I'm going to jump ahead to what happens to Stanley's body. Unless you, Okay. Yeah, you, no, okay. that's fine. Go for it. Okay, so... <laughs> They take the landlord. This is before they know he's the killer. They take the landlord's body, try to cover for Gracie because she accidentally killed him. Uh, and they decide to make him a Christmas tree by taking all the branches off their Christmas tree and just sticking them on him. Uh, putting what did she say? I wrapped him in those burlap sacks, which are really itchy unless you're dead. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that drove me crazy is they put him in upside down. I cannot figure out why. Stick out the top. Yeah, why did they make him a tree the opposite way? That was so weird to me. I was like, wouldn't it be better to have like a firmer base with the I don't know. It just I thought that was bizarre that they did it upside down. They panicked. They don't know what they're doing. This yeah. is not the first <laughs> the first time they ever is, had to deal with a corpse. <laughs> it is funny when they're taking the they're taking it to the boardwalk. They're singing Christmas carols. Miss Munchnik comes up. She's like, what are you doing with our tree? They're like, it's not mm -hmm. our tree. She goes, yes, it's our tree. And then they're singing. And she starts singing the most annoying way, like bombastic, loud, off key, everything, like clearly drawing attention to them. And Steve Martin's just rolling his eyes like we're supposed to be low key doing this. And then they have the the a, a funny callback with the rollerbladers, Parker Posey and John Stewart, <laughs> who are determined to destroy their tree because they've already <laughs> run to it. There's like, your tree is history. You ruined our Christmas. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. I was surprised also when they threw the tree up in the air. I don't think that would knock the branches off. I really don't. Just twirl, well, twirling like in the air a couple of times. Yeah. Super yeah. I, I guess that super glue didn't hold that well to the burlap. No. Just not a good, <laughs> none of surface contact. It just showed his his dead hand there. And that's how right. I figured it out. But yeah. But Munchik comes back after like she got laid on the beach, right? That's why mm -hmm. she's like all exuberant and singing in this. Pronounced the dog's way. lover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the dog's exactly. lover now. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's great, though. I mean, it's like, like I said, I like that she got to have that moment and that oh, she yeah. comes back and she's not this buttoned down, like, cold presentation yeah. anymore. She's she's singing and she's filled with joy. She's got, she got a, a dose she, of the holiday spirit. And she tries to cover for them. She does, yeah. She doesn't. Even, she doesn't even know what happened. Nobody's even told her anything. She's like, he committed suicide. Like she just assumes everybody's okay and everybody's, you know, doing the right thing. So, yeah, I didn't like the line where she talks was talking shit about Rita Wilson though, because I feel like she knows Rita Wilson's a really nice person. I think she gets on her nerves in the movie when they're together. Uh, she's like, she's the most devious person I've ever met. I was <laughs> like, it just seemed weird to call 
Rita Wilson's character is so obviously not that type of person. Yeah. Even if somebody who didn't like her, I feel like they wouldn't think that. So it was kind of a weird line. I thought that it, it's building up to the line where she tells, you know, Steve Martin, she wants to rip your clothes off. But I don't know. I just thought that was an odd thing to have her say, like, she's the most devious person I've ever met, Catherine. Like, no, she's really sweet and not bothering anybody. <laughs> you yeah. know, devious uh, is a strange choice of words in I that thought situation. So. Yeah, what are weird you gonna movie. do? Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of it's not, not the, the only weird line uttered in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. And then they get very, they get very biblical toward the end. They become they like the the nativity scene, basically. Well, first Felix uh, climbs the tattoo parlor and is going to shoot himself or jump off. I think shoot himself, but yeah. for some reason on the top of a building, and. uh that's the moment that actually becomes somewhat nicer than you would think, because it seems kind of silly and contrived. But Steve Martin does actually say some whoever wrote that scene did a good job. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's Nora Ephron or Delia Ephron, but they did a good job with. Kind of underlining the theme, I would say, of the movie or the theme the movie wants to have um, and sort of still. Having a sweetness to it or like something that just rings true, it doesn't feel false. I guess that's a part of the character too that you're supposed to feel like is he's finally good in person. He's finally speaking yes, thank you. correctly. Yeah, he's not he's not messing it up in person. He's actually saying something and he's speaking from the heart, which is good. Yeah, it's like an opening up for him, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it's a much like you said, it's a different character basically than the guy that we've seen throughout the rest of the film. Like yeah. it's it sort of forces him into that position of I don't know if maturity is the right word, but it's like he steps up. He answers the call when he needs to answer it the most. And they yeah. get to have their happy Christmas ending. And I like this is coming after the the Christmas miracle, which I'm going to say is the discovery of Stanley as the serial killer. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's like you get that's the Christmas miracle. And then everything sort of has to like fall into place and be the happy ending after that. And yeah, you get basically a nativity scene sort of towards the end there. Uh, she's just given birth to the baby. I think they're out like on the sidewalk, right? When that happens. So, yeah, yeah. And he has to step up in that moment and help give birth to the child as well. So it's like it becomes like like it, it goes from like not being really a Christmas movie. to all of a sudden being like a super Christmas movie in a condensed yeah. little time frame there at the end. Because that's like the last 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah. I just figured something out. You know what Blankman and Mixed Nuts have in common besides I don't underappreciated comics from 24. <laughs> they both have crazy childbirth scenes. <laughs> they do have crazy childbirth scenes in like weird they places. Used, they could have yeah. used the speculum of life. Yeah, Steve Martin just said, I'm a father after he gave birth. Yeah. Both 1994 <laughs> movies as well. And so you, you have these underappreciated. Two, yeah, well, a very like particular style of comedy in 1994 that's like quirky it's like a little different than everything else that was around that time so it sort of stands out in that way you get these unlikely heroes you know mm -hmm. yeah they have, they have more in common than maybe we would have thought when we planned this a couple of weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's nice to think that at that time you were able to have different kinds of comedies like that like as much as i like some of the comedies that come out now i feel like they're all kind of similar in tone. I don't feel like you get that much of a difference between like say bottoms or cocaine bear, even though I think one's a lot better. Um, 
they they're in the same world kind of or the way hmm. they talk and the references in my opinion but like i feel like i feel like back then comedies were more free to just be to try more things be more experimental in a way that's how i feel about these movies like they're not straight down the plate kind of movies and for some reason i feel like comedies nowadays everybody has to have like a certain i don't is it like a social media type of talk like I, it's like bodies 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 was probably the worst example of what i'm talking about mm-hmm. not like a bad movie but like just being it's ever it's everybody's a little bit too self-aware sometimes a little too self-referential it's like yeah i'm not quite sure it almost like is like they're making jokes and hashtags <laughs> there's a certain i don't know i feel like it's kind of refreshing to see i feel like they swung for the fences a little bit more back in the day seems like in some I think, ways i think there was more freedom to fail right like you could take a exactly. chance and miss yeah. and it's not the end of your career it's not the end of the studio now it's like okay we need to see returns on this comedy if we're going to finance it and that's why you see a little bit more freedom in something like uh bottoms where like cocaine bear didn't get to be like a full-on comedy it didn't really get to be a full-on horror movie or like a a full-on thriller either it had to sort of hedge its bets to make sure that there was enough of an audience there to to guarantee ticket sales so yeah i mean yeah i think the benefit of something now is that at least the stuff that is good will be sort of on like not necessarily like the cutting edge of what's funny, but you don't have to rely as much on something where it's like, oh, we we hired a comedian as the lead. Right. And that's like, OK, now we're going to build the whole movie around like that person's style of stand up comedy where it's like, you know, that was like the Seinfeld model. Like, I mean, that's basically what they did with Beverly Hills Cop. Right. You take a Eddie Murphy, who's a great stand up comic, like you build this around him, you let him be the star. And so now like that's that's a little bit less common and i don't know if it's because of like just the nature of where stand up comedy is or where you know marketable movie comedy is but the the one that came out earlier this year the what's his name Brett Kreischer right oh yeah yeah uh, the machine i forgot what it was called yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah i i didn't see it because i watched the trailer like one too many times and by the like the third time i was like uh eh, i kind of only want to see this for mark hamill and then I was like, yeah. eh, it, it came and went and I never caught it. So is what it is. But yeah, like th- there's that model of comedy making. And then it's like Bottoms is a good example or Dick's the musical of like, you know, fairly new, fresh, unknown talent at the front of it. And it's really sort of like the writing and the filmmaking behind it that make that what it is more so than like leaning on the star power of the cast. Yeah. Yeah, that's. That's interesting. I yeah, I forgot about that that Burt Kreischer movie. Like I it don't it didn't come out that long ago, did it? I fully forgot like about that. Summertime, I think. When when did No Hard Feelings come out? That was a summer movie, right? Oh like yeah, late I summer. That was, I liked that one too. I think late summer. Yeah, because yeah, that was, it was in the trailers during No Hard Feelings. So figure like it was a fall movie. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting though. I like you make a good point about the, the freedom to fail. Yeah, back then it wouldn't Steve Martin didn't really have a great 90s across the board. He had some stuff going on in the mid 90s that was not like they weren't a bunch. He didn't have a bunch of big hits in the 90s. Uh, even even like Bowfinger, Bob. which I love, is not a movie that was like super successful. And that's him and Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And he wrote it. So you're like, yeah. oh, that's even more. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. That was kind of like almost the turning point. Um, it felt like it got him back on track, mm. but not like you're saying, not box office wise, more like quality wise. Yeah. He just had a string of movies in the mid 90s that weren't weren't huge. It was like between Father of the Bride and uh, Bowfinger was a little bit of a lull for him. But but it didn't you didn't feel like his. I feel like people were allowed to have a run of a few movies that weren't hits before they were written off as unsuccessful. You think of like Tom Hanks, you know, he had like four, I think, kind of quote unquote bombs in a row. He had like the Burbs, Turn Hooch, Bonfire of the Vanities, maybe Punchline, and then then a league of their own, which hits. And then that after that it's Philadelphia, Forrest Gump. It all just keeps going up, up, up from there. Um, but yeah, if you had a lull in the middle of your career, it didn't feel like so dire. Now it feels like you don't get parts anymore if you yeah, if you have a couple movies that luck, you go to you go to movie jail. And that's not not fair. Yeah. I mean, Nora Ephron probably would have, if she made a movie that did as ba- badly as McStutz done had done, she probably wouldn't get. You've got mail. She probably wouldn't be able to make more movies. You know, they'd say, "No, I'm sorry." And I think, to be honest, they did it a lot more. They're harder on female directors in that way too. I think. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. They don't get as much room to fuck up. Yeah, I mean, because you you don't get to be part of the boys' club, where it's like, "Oops, sorry, I wasted your twenty million. Give me another twenty, and I'll make it back on the next one." Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because she like she went on to do she wrote Michael after this, which oh, I, I like. Forgot about Michael. It's 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 not as bad as the rating that I'm looking at, but yeah, she she, she does Michael, and then it's You've Got Mail, <clears throat> then Hanging Up and Bewitched, which neither of those were well received, but then does julia and julia in 2009 which well received but you're looking at like okay this was 94 and then 96 98 2000 so two years between projects then five years after hanging up four years before making a a short or writing additional dialogue for a short and then another so for like another four years between features before julia and julia so yeah and only only eight movies in her, her entire directing career like and none since 2009 even coming off the strength of a good one with meryl streep right yeah and amy adams the julian oh yeah yeah and when did she when did she die she died like uh it was a few years ago maybe like 2014 or something it was like around the mid part of last yeah 2012 so oh wow um but I'd forgotten about Michael. I actually do remember liking Michael. I enjoyed yeah. that. I, I haven't seen it in forever, so I don't know. But <laughs> I remember it being good. And I always think of when Harry Met Sally as a movie Nora Ephron directed. But no, Rob Reiner directed, but she wrote it. So it is very much a Nora Ephron's voice. Yeah. Um, but that's probably why Rob Reiner showed up, you know, here. I'm sure they're friends and mm. she got him to do a cameo, you know, that sort of <laughs> thing. So. Well, give Michael a chance. I, you know, it's one of those movies like that I watched a lot when it came out, and it's like a, I saw it in theaters, and then when it was on cable. Like in the following years, I watched it a bunch. I haven't seen it in a long time as well, so who really knows? But I like the like the core concept of that film, and I think it's mm-hmm. executed fairly well, even though it's only got I think like a what is this five point seven? That's that's pretty shitty, but. Well, I remember it being decent. I remember the main thing I remember about it is just him like wearing like a duster with the wings sticking out, mm-hmm. like line dancing at a bar. <laughs> yeah, it's Do got a really like it's got like... a really creepy looking John Travolta on its poster as well. So maybe oh. that didn't do it any favor. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy McDowell's in that, right? Andy McDowell. Yeah. 
yeah, she's great in it too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think now's a good time for some trivia. Time for trivia. But yeah, you had brought up that you know Carrie Fisher's half sister is in this, so we've got some other trivia to get into. Question one. We had talked about Lee Schreiber and the fact this was his first feature film. Uh, Crazy. Comes on, maybe gives the best performance in the movie. But who was offered the role of Chris and turned it down? I'll give you a hint. It's another SNL alum. From the mid-90s. Uh, I would think it would have to be somebody tall and kind of with a deep voice. Uh, I'm going to say... I don't know. I'll say Mike Myers. That doesn't fit either of the things I said. <laughs> uh, it turns out it was a guy who lived in a van down by the river. It was no way. Harley was offered this role and said no. What? That would have been wild. I know. I started imagining like what Chris Farley would have been in that role. And I'm like, wow. That would have been a totally different. That would have been so different like that. I can't even imagine. That's a completely different. Right? <laughs> all those scenes would be a thousand percent different. It's like, oh, uh, it would have been so much more comedic and like not really. I don't think it would have been taken as serious. It's like, yeah, that's wild to think about. It, I'm glad yeah, they went in the direction they did. Yeah. I think it would have been a disservice to the character because everything yeah. would have been punchlines rather than, you know, yeah. like giving this character an actual arc, a story, like a reason to cheer for them. Uh, but it makes sense because, like, you know, the opposite end of the love interest spectrum was Adam Sandler in that case and Chris Farley, oh, yeah. good friends. But, yeah, would have been a way, way different character. And I think Gosh. would have changed the entire movie by quite a bit. It would have definitely ruined parts that I think are especially important and good in yeah. this movie. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I don't think it would have worked in the same way in terms of, like, representation. But... You know, Chris Farley didn't take it and maybe given the chance there might have been like serious like acting skill coming to the surface given the opportunity. But, you know, in another timeline, that movie exists, but not in ours. Uh, So question number two, we had talked about this a little bit as well, that this movie came out in a pretty crowded Christmas week, but also a crowded Christmas month as this was the fifth and final Christmas movie of 1994. Can you name two of the other four Christmas theme movies of '94? Yeah, the Santa Claus. Yep. And there's one more. That you said? There's three more. So if you can name two of those other three, or excuse me, one of those other three, the Ref. The Ref. Yeah, great one. Trapped in Paradise. Oh, there you go. There's another one. That's the Cage one. And I, I don't know about the fourth one i don't think i'll be able to get it that was, Miracle that on 34th most... street oh yes that remake yeah, yeah okay got <laughs> hey it. you got three out of four that's more than that's more than i expected i was like okay yeah, i remember was... the ref i remember the santa claus but not the other two i could this is pay. like the perfect time <laughs> of for me to play a game like that because when i was younger i would like study release dates and i knew all the movies mm. that came out i was a big nerd about especially movies in the mid 90s so that's why that works out for me <laughs> gotcha well you, d- you killed it okay and we also touched on this earlier. This is a remake of the 1982 French film La Père Noël Est Une Ordure. Do you know what that translates to? I do, but I looked it up. Okay, that's fine. Well, just give us the answer anyway. Let's, this is for the see. audience. 
Isn't it Santa Claus is a stinker or something like uh, that? Santa Claus is garbage. <laughs> just the answer. Oh, okay. I'll okay. say I'll say close enough though. That's pretty good. <laughs> He's a real stinker. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't give out cash prizes here on trivia, so at least right. there was no money that you lost. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess it's not surprising actually that you know maybe you're dealing with like Christmas movie fatigue by the time December twenty first rolls around on nineteen ninety four and. You see sure. a Dumb and Dumber come out, and like that's a summer movie that's all of a sudden in Christmas, and you know Nora Ephron's got to compete with that. Plus, you've already got the Ref, which is a quirky sort of anti-Christmas movie that also made that like anti-Christmas movie list that I was working on like three years ago. Uh, yeah. And then you've got like the classic, very manicured sort of Christmas story and miracle on 34th street. And then you get trapped in paradise, which is sort of like another alternative. And then the Santa Claus is the sort of like traditional family comedy beat type of Christmas movie. So by the time that you see yet another Christmas movie being released, and it's like, you're probably knee deep in shopping for Christmas presents at that point, you're probably tighter on money than you were at the beginning of December as well. So there's a lot of things lining up against this movie in terms of it being a box office success. But yeah. over time, it still ended up, you know, managing to get a, it's got a 5.4 on IMDb. So that's not great. I think, well, what did I post from Letterboxd? It was like it was mid range. It was like two and a half, three, maybe it was not high, not low. Uh, but right there in the middle, and then Rotten Tomatoes had this at uh, 14% critic score, but 57 audience score. So again, like critics really didn't like it. And then, you know, audiences were torn. It was like some people really like it a lot. Some people don't like it at all, but better represented by audiences than it was by critics. And I know you're a Siskel and Ebert scholar, and I do see that we've got Roger's score up on the board for Critics Corner. Uh, so do you remember what Siskel had to say about it? Or do you want to go straight into Critics Corner and get to Roger as fast as we can? Uh, Siskel said it was terrible. He said, um, <laughs> he said, uh, he feels like what happened with the movie was a bunch of actors agreed to do some short parts for Nora Ephron as a favor. Um, and then it, like, but I think that doesn't make sense because actually everyone in the movie is in the movie for quite a while. Like nobody just shows up. Rob Reiner aside, nobody pops up for just like a scene. People who are in this movie are in it throughout. So I, I didn't really agree with what he said there about, mm. you know, she just had a mess on her hands and people agreed to do it as a favor and blah blah. blah. Um, yeah, I was pretty much it. He just said it wasn't funny and it was a tired comedy and just I don't know. Uh, they both hated it. <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> but yeah i do remember right. that comment though about about lots of people doing small favors for director efron i was like and eh, most people are in this movie for about half an hour so <laughs> and even if it is a small favor it's like who cares like there there's this thing that i like in movies where it's like i can clearly see that this movie was fun to make and that the people in it are having fun making it and that yeah. makes it more fun for me to watch and so when I see something like this and you have the kind of cast that you have in this and you have Rob Reiner coming in doing a cameo and you've got the John Stewart and Parker Posey characters that don't even have names. They're just rollerblader and rollerblader, you know, 
So to have them come in and be these kind of like throwaway characters, like that tells me that the people wanted to be involved in this because they thought it was fun. So I like that about it. And, you know, I guess a lot of people didn't, but we'll go to Critics Corner and we'll see how bad it gets because 14 is pretty low. uh, (laughs) And I see some zeros on the board to start, but we've got the... Christian Science Monitor and the Los Angeles Times both gave it zeros. So I'll let you pick between the two. Uh, Los Angeles Times. <laughs> LA Times this is Peter Rayner. He says Mix Nuts is a farcical, whirly gig that doesn't whirl. It's energetically unfunny, like Radioland Murders. And like that film, it boasts top flight talent. Maybe the idea of making a comedy about Suicide Prevention Center just got to everyone. It's a bummed out comedy about being bummed out. I disagree with all that. <laughs> Top to bottom. I haven't seen Rayland Murders, but I remember it. But I don't think I don't think a lack of energy is the problem with this movie at all. If no, there is a problem. It's not. It, Peter did not like the humor and he cannot get past the sort of the gloom elements that help shape what the narrative of the film ends up being because, you know, we talked about this film for, you know, a little bit over an hour now and we've acknowledged that, yeah, talking about suicide and presenting suicide and the way that you're going to do it for this movie, it's hard. And there's a lot of like darkness and sadness that comes along with this movie. And if you can accept that this is what the movie's trying to do and meet the movie on that level, you'll come away with a much higher score than zero. But this guy was definitely suffering from Christmas movie fatigue because this is published December 21st, 1994. <laughs> oh, yeah. Peter. That is crazy. Like, just jumping off what you said there about having... This is the fifth Christmas movie, and this one's opening four days before Christmas. Yeah, no wonder it didn't do well. I mean, come on. Yeah, that fatigue really, I bet, was set in. And also, this one, they gave this one no time to grow. But... um. Yeah, I don't agree with what Peter said. Like, yeah, it, yeah, I think he's putting a lot of his own shit onto it. Like, they must have just let this dark subject matter get to them. Like, no, no got it got to you, I guess. But like, why are you projecting that onto the actors? They're all doing their job and doing a good job. And like you said, they all look like they're having fun to me. So, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned the holdovers earlier too, because I felt like in watching this last night, I was like trying to understand like what really like you know kneecapped this movie and i was like it's got maybe some scruffy characters that you don't necessarily bond to right away and there's some strife and the humor isn't necessarily like this fluffy sort of punchline driven humor like it's slapsticky for sure but then like watching the holdovers which i think is one of the better if not one of the best movies of the year so far and to see that it has had such a nice welcoming response and that everyone I've seen talk about it has spoken of it pretty glowingly lets me know that like there is room for Christmas stories that aren't, you know, the cookie cutter stuff. And there is room for darkness. There is room for depth. The holdovers, I think, does a better job of giving the audience time to like be in the downspace. So that way, like when when you rise back up, it's like, oh, we're all like kind of coming back up together. The jokes work in that moment. And then when it needs to be heartfelt, it kind of slows down, lets it be heartfelt. It's a very different kind of movie. But I think. I'm, I just want to say that I'm glad that that movie is having success where yeah. this one was sort of unable to find that success. Yeah, 
I, I see what you're saying. I mean, there is, it's not totally dissimilar. I mean, I think what you're talking about, and I agree, is that this movie is vibrating on a different frequency, oh, a yeah. more intense frequency. Than vibrating is a good word. <laughs> yeah, vibrating. <laughs> yeah. And it's like shorter. So it's all happening so fast. Um, and the holdovers has more room to breathe and to maybe make the characters feel a bit more real. But I also think this that holdovers, of course, has the benefit of the time, like we talked about, mm-hmm. is the benefit of the pedigree of Alexander Payne. Um, and actually, film festival, I think it played yeah. film festival. Like, that's always good to get word of mouth going. But I, this almost feels like they dumped this movie to me in a way, like to throw it the last of all these Christmas movies, throw it on a day when there's like five other movies opening not really promoted that well like i i just don't think this movie really got the the studio machine behind it the way it needed yeah i mean definitely not it seemed you know they put it out to pasture and just like we'll you know hope it does what it does but i mean isn't Nora efron coming off of huge hit. This, is, this is this is yeah hit. uh and academy award nominated for it as well yeah, yeah? uh so this like should have definitely been an opportunity to be a much bigger success than it ended up being at least <laughs> or at least to trick people into the theater <laughs> yeah at the very least <laughs> the way like, that they always the do the way yeah. they always do yeah try to trick you to get in the theater and then you don't like it but you spend your money <laughs> yeah uh okay so we go to the the tens on the board and that's the new york times and the washington post so you want to go washington or new york with this one this is like 10 out of 10 no this is a 10 out of 100. Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> what were they again? What publication? It is again? the New York Times and the Washington Post. Let's go New York Times. I want to see if it's my girl, Janet. It is Janet Maislin. Yes. Gave it a 10. Says, staged is pure fluff without an ounce of ballast. Mixed Nuts succeeds only in getting its cast into Halloween caliber crazy costumes by the time it's over. I mean... I don't I don't I don't look at as much of this as like fluff like like we said slapstick yes but the actual content isn't fluff so it's like it just feels like a misread I agree it succeeds with the (laughs) with the costumes but not only (laughs) not only (laughs) that's not the one thing oh Janet come on have a little fun have a sense of humor Janet yeah where's your Christmas spirit Janet yeah she was exhausted too uh okay so now we've got an 11 and a 12 one is real views and the other is the austin chronicle uh do austin chronicle austin chronicle let's see i don't see anyone's name attached to this it says but though there's a half a cashew of steve martin's amazing physical comedy i'm already done yeah a couple of (laughs) pecans of sven nyquist's beautiful cinematography and a few eye-catching filberts of a very Venice set decoration is not nearly enough to satisfy. Be forewarned. <laughs> Open this can of mixed nuts and you'll find nothing but a bunch of goobers. Next. Really went on really went on to the nut puns <laughs> in that one, huh? That is yeah. crazy. Like he spent the whole movie just thinking of that. Right. He didn't pay any attention. He was like, hmm. how many how many of these can I throw in here? Yeah. What is in this mixed can of nuts? Because I'm going to use these to write a scathing review. This is a half cashew. So dumb. <laughs> I I missed the one thing I did learn from that review is I I did not notice that it was Sven Nyquist who uh, shot this movie. He's got a lot of I mean, he did like a lot of Ingmar Bergman movies. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he did um what teeny gilbert grape and then chaplain sleepless in seattle also with nor effort anyway it's i mean and it looks it looks good it shot well yeah but i mean that it makes is. that makes sense why i, I didn't realize yeah. it had such a high pedigree behind its <laughs> camera work yeah so on paper you would think that this movie like would have had a shot at success i mean next year is going to be the 30th anniversary right so hey i can tell whoever you got to tell in nashville get a screening going you know pump it up uh i'm bringing it back there you go all right (laughs) so we got 338s on the board but one of them belongs to raj so we got to go chicago sun times roger ebert says maybe there's too much talent Every character shines with such dazzling intensity and such inexhaustible comic invention that the movie becomes tiresome like too many clowns. So I think my favorite thing about Roger Ebert is that he always gives credit to the thing that he likes in movies that he doesn't like. And this, although it is a 38, it's well below the bar of like, what would he consider a movie that he likes or thinks is good? He's very complimentary of the things that he actually liked about it, where all of these other people are just like, I'm exhausted. And, you know, I just want to get this published before Christmas so I can enjoy my holiday kind of thing. (laughs) He clearly acknowledges that the characters are all good and that they all give good performances. And Like it's maybe too much of all of these characters giving good performances where a movie like The Holdovers, you start with, you know, it looks like it's going to be this big cast of boys and uh, Paul Giamatti's character. And then it gets stripped down to just the three of them. And that's where it shines is that it gives each of them room to breathe. They all have their own stories. They all like interconnect in that way and they all depend on each other. And so, yes, I think it's a fair criticism to Levy that there may just be too much going on in this particular story with this gigantic, excellent cast. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's the only one we've heard that I'm like, I, I can see how somebody would think that, yeah. that it's just overkill too much of a good thing. I, and it, sometimes in the movie, I feel that way, honestly, like I'm not with the movie from scene to scene. There's yeah, times when I'm like, in the I'm, middle. <laughs> I'm over this. Yeah. There's a good 10 minute chunk in the middle where I'm just like, I don't give a shit about any of this, but then I get back <laughs> into it. It's just, yeah, you can kind of, fluctuate with this movie in a, but i understand what he means uh don't think that's low but yeah i mean for something that you like the par- parts and pieces you just weren't into the final product but do you raj it's okay raj we still love you and <laughs> love you. we we end with a 50 which is the highest score on the board so at least we cracked the halfway mark there's, there's nothing higher than a 50 at least wow. not according to this there may be if i search all 16 reviews but this is the board that i'm working off of and it's the chicago tribune and it's not Siskel. It is Michael Wilmington. Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember. Him. He says it's hard to create snap crackling languor or laid back frenzy. And there's also something condescending in the entire conception of mixed nuts. So this to me feels like a significantly more negative review than what we just read from Roger Ebert. Yet he gave it basically like a pass in a pass fail score. Yeah. Very what strange. Feels, what is the word he used? Cynical? What's the word? Like, condescending. What feels condescending about it? That's what I don't understand. Like, I need, I'm like, yeah, I wish if I could talk to Michael Wilmington, I'd be like, can you elaborate on what? I don't feel like any of the performances are condescending. I feel like everybody's pretty in it. I, I don't, I don't feel like the writing really sells out the characters. I'm like, I'm not sure what he even means by that, but. Yeah, I mean, the best way I could put it is that it handles its heaviest themes kind of flippantly with oh, yeah, gun violence, domestic abuse 
uh, suicide in general, but that it doesn't feel condescending to me. I don't feel like this is like, you know, speaking down to its audience or to its characters. Like there's a couple of like low hanging fruit jokes that, you know, you would expect of a 90s movie with these kind of characters. But for the most part, I feel like, you know, condescension is a little bit of a misrepresentation of what the tone actually is. Yeah, I, I agree with you about. Yeah, but I do think I see what you're saying about the uh, the way it's kind of flipping about some of that stuff that I can see that rubbing people the wrong way and maybe coming up as condescending if you were like, if it was something that was like, especially um, has like touched your life in a special way. I can see how you would think the treatment of it in this movie might be a little bit condescending because it's yeah. really using it more for to set up jokes. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense, kind of. Okay, we'll gi- we'll give you we'll give you the half credit that you gave this movie, Mr. Wilmington. We'll give you yeah, the fifty. Right. Uh, he didn't use the nut the nut puns. <laughs> he didn't. Good for you, sir. Thank God. Did not take the low hanging fruit there. <clears throat> but um, yeah, that brings Critics Corner to a close. Um, I do have to wrap this up soon because I got to go pick up the dog from the doctor. But we're gonna do things a little bit differently. Normally, I'm like, "Hey, give me a you know a gateway drug kind of movie for this, or give me something that you would feature as a as a double feature with this." But I'm more curious about your your general like Christmas movie habits. I know you said you watch this one a lot, but do like you and your family have like a go to Christmas movie, or do you have a personal favorite Christmas movie outside of this? I would say the big one uh, in my family is. Uh... Christmas Vacation. Yeah, me too. Me and my cousins watch that. Uh, well, we used to get together more, but we would watch it like every year. Um, I've probably seen that movie ever once a year since I've been alive, I would say. Well, no, that's not true because it came out four years after I was born. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it a lot. I've seen it at least 30 times, if not more. Okay. Um, it's, it's I know the lines. We just know the lines back and forth. I mean, we just we've seen it so many times that we could like perform it um that is the one i think that mostly is like the one that i've seen a ton and that it was like a family tradition um trying to think like christmas do you have like another oddball christmas movie that like is outside of the the cookie cutter frame well i actually would we talked about earlier but i would say the ref is a good one because not a a lot of not a lot of people know about the ref the ref is a, a dark comedy with like family drama elements it's it's mm-hmm. wild but it's it's actually a good christmas movie i I like that one i haven't seen it in a few years I actually might watch it again now that we've talked about it because i, I, I want to see it again uh it has a problematic actor in it but uh, yeah. like, <laughs> but no i might that's every movie from the 90s um yeah, basically now yeah yeah but uh i might check that out I'm, I'm trying to think if there was anything i mean muppet christmas carol is great yeah, a good one. Um, that's a classic. Are you a fan of Scrooged? You not like that? Really. No, not really. I, w- I like. I know people love it, but no. it, I've never been on the Scrooge train. I'm not sure why. I just no. It just I misses. I don't me. love I'm or not... hate it. Yeah, I, it just misses me for some reason. I did rewatch Home Alone one and two just mm. uh, just because I haven't seen them in forever, <clears throat> and they were movies I loved as a kid. And now I'm like, they're fine. But I I should have just left. I maybe should have left it as a kid thing. <laughs> Especially the sequel. The sequels, that the whole conceit of the sequel is so tortured that it's so hard for me to watch the first like 20 minutes of the movie. They they have it's just so much stuff that they do wrong. And you're just like, 
uh, everything, everything's going, I don't know. Once you get into the story, it's fine, but it's like, well, it's, it's fine, but it's also the exact same movie as the first one, including yeah. the older <laughs> sketchy character. You can't trust who becomes up being a good guy. Like it's crazy yeah. how beat for beat. It's the same as the, and then they, he finds a house, of course, to do his stuff. Uh, they're not bad movies of, uh, and Tim Curry's really good and useful in the second one to change things up. Yeah. His energy is good. Um, like slap, yeah, a, movies... slap a two on it. Nobody's going to know the difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, but yeah, those, uh, I watched those this year. Like that's been the two Christmas movies I think I've seen most recently. Uh, and they did kind of do a good job of putting me more so the first one and like the Christmas spirit, I would say. Because Home Alone does have some sweet moments, especially toward the end. That's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I never thought of it when I was younger, but after doing the episode I did with Vanya for Rocky Four, it's like, that is a movie. That's a Christmas movie. The main event takes place on Christmas Day. There's Christmas decorations around. You get what I was mentioning earlier, sort of that snowy Philadelphia feel, which the holdovers has a lot of that. So it's like it feels like the holidays on screen. Um, so that's a, that's a good alternative that I didn't consider before. Um, also. Eyes Wide Shut is a movie that takes oh, place yeah. at Christmas as well and is so far removed from the regular Christmas movie <laughs> that uh, it's a great alternative answer. And the one that besides Christmas Vacation, which I've seen basically every year since like my stepdad came into my life because he had brought that movie to us. So the one that has become a staple over the last like three or four years is Anna and the Apocalypse, which is a zombie apocalypse Christmas musical. And oh, wow. I don't even know that it's like great, but it is unique at being what it is. And there's a couple like really catchy, fun songs in it. And it's like gory and fun and it knows what it is, basically. You know, it's not pretentious and trying to pretend that it's something that it isn't. I've never heard of that, but it's like 2018, uh, 2017. OK. I thought of one more um I don't know how big the Ernest movies are in other oh. parts of the world, but Ernest Saves Christmas. All the Ernest movies are great. Ernest started here in Nashville. Uh, he yeah, was the he did. spokesman for Purity Dairy. Mm -hmm. And so like when we were little kids, we'd go to the Purity Dairy. They'd take us on the field trip and they'd show us like Ernest uh, little shorts with him in it. And so and I actually used to see him around a lot. Like when I was a kid, I ran into him and in, because he lived like in North Nashville where I live. Um, I saw him at like the store a couple times and he was really nice. Um, one at one time I saw him and he didn't, he couldn't remember which Ernest movie he'd just made. He, made so many. <laughs> he was like, I think I'm doing the one with the, eventually he's like, it's the one with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm like, okay, so that's coming out. <laughs> but I will say Ernest Saves Christmas. I haven't seen it in a couple years, but I have seen that movie a lot and I've always enjoyed that movie. And I like Ernest. I think he's funny. So. Yeah, that's a that's a good call. That's a good one to close it out on. And when Ryan and I did our uh, Ernest Scared Stupid episode, we sort of went mm -hmm. through the whole Ernest universe. I think there's like nine movies in the Ernest universe. So uh, I listen to that like now. Like to that. <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was just interesting to see that like you know he had gone from sort of like a regional celebrity to being like one of the biggest, most marketable movie stars like just on his own brand basically yeah. and it was Ernest goes to camp Ernest saves Christmas Ernest starts stupid and then Ernest goes to jail where the four yeah. that were all released as uh, basically under the Disney umbrella for touchdown and so yeah. like these were 
big movies and I'm not even from Nashville, but I knew about Jim Varney and these characters and Ernest Saves Christmas is one that I have probably seen less than the other ones, but I might make a point to watch it here over the next few days. Yeah, I think I am too, just because I hadn't thought about it in a while, but when you were talking about, I was like, that is one that really was part of my life growing up <laughs> that I need to revisit for sure. Um, I will say one last thing. I So the theater, the independent theater near me is showing movies for holiday movies, holiday mm-hmm. classics for the Christmas. And um, they, I've never seen Carol. And I went to see Todd Haynes' movie Carol with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Rooney yeah, Mara. yeah. And uh, that was great like fantastic i can't believe i had waited so long to see it i've heard it was great forever but it's a good movie that takes place around christmas that is like the tone is very much its own it's very original unique and it's beautiful it's just really really a good movie um that i recommend if anybody's looking for an offbeat christmas movie that's not like treacly or <laughs> they don't have any steve martin style speeches at the end of this movie but uh it or is it is very good yeah. yeah you don't want that mass produced like a prince for christmas yeah. and then the sequel a princess for christmas and then a king and queen <laughs> for christmas yeah there's right. there's a lot of those uh and i mean between the two of us i think we gave out like seven or eight you know kind of alternate uh wrecks for christmas season so I think that's a good way to sort of just put a bow on the episode let it be what it is i <laughs> hope that if you do end up listening to this in time for the holidays or even just before December's over, that not only did you enjoy Mixed Nuts and enjoy us talking about it, but that you were able to find something else maybe that you hadn't seen and fold that into your regular Christmas watching habits. That's the true nature of Christmas, is sharing. <laughs> sharing well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll touch base and we'll we'll make sure that we get another movie somewhere in the works for like maybe early next year. Probably be like springtime though. So keep yeah. those gears turning. I will. Thanks for having me back uh, so soon. I appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, it uh, has been. I always. I, this is one of those movies that I don't ever get a chance to talk about because nobody's seen it. So it's nice to talk to it about talk about it in <laughs> depth with someone. <laughs> it's a favorite of mine from back in the day. So. Yeah, I mean, up until I had seen it a couple years ago, I had never heard of it. And then I think I saw one person mention it on Twitter, and they did not like what they saw. And I forgot, I said something of like, oh, like the cast is great, like it's better than it gets credit for, something like that. And I don't know that that interaction ever ended up going anywhere, but I don't see anybody generally speaking about this movie during the holidays. So we'll we'll do the promotion work for them, and then hopefully that'll lead us into the 30-year anniversary celebration next year. Yes. I will say this real quick. I texted my best friend who we have nearly identical movie tastes. And I texted him and told him, I was like, I'm doing a podcast about mixed nuts tonight. I'll send you the link when, when I get it. And he, he wrote back, I wish I liked that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so even we have the same taste basically. And he even disagrees with us on it. So just can't win sometimes. Gosh, <laughs> You can't, but Hey, that means you get to have these kind of movies for yourself. And it's like just gets to be this little thing that you enjoy, like kind of in private. And you still got a chance to talk about it and share why you loved it and why we feel that it's wrongly derided here. But you know what? I think the best way to resolve this situation is if you haven't seen it, watch it for yourself. And then if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But if you do, you found a little Christmas gem that is not like all the other Christmas movies. 
Yes. Don't don't take it too seriously if you watch no, it. Just definitely don't. have a lighter. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, they don't mean anything by it. <laughs> it's the 90s. Give them a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, man. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Yeah. Happy holidays. You too, man. My thanks again to Scott for coming to hang out and celebrate the holiday season in style with Mixed Nuts. You can find Scott on X at Cole, Scott spelled out, and as a contributing writer at MusicCityDriving.com. But don't worry, because I will put the links up for all of his stuff in the show notes. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash bad movies we love. I'd love to hear from you. So if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram. And that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe and have fun however you get your movies. And a very happy holidays to you.